didn't want to rob you of the joy of doing it. So I thought I would embarrass you instead. <laughs> no, thanks so much. Let's pray together. Merciful God, it's hard to believe sometimes that you long to have communion with us, but you do. So much so that you wanted to become one of us. And we give you permission, Father, to break our resistance that we carry in our hearts and that you point us to the way that leads to the Father. We ask that you show us the path to have just and righteous relations with others and not just our family or maybe even especially with our families. We bring, uh, ask, that you ask, ask that you bring your unimaginable peace to us, Lord Jesus, this morning. We thank you for keeping our lives in your care and protection. We pray for peace around the world with so many armed conflicts everywhere. And we ask you to overcome the arrogance and the hatred that is so delusional. We pray for those in our community who are hurting and struggling uh, with physical health and also those who are spiritually and emotionally hurting. And in the process of healing, we pray for those who may live and work in dangerous places those who are on a slippery path of addictions. We ask for prayer for those, we pray for those who are uh, exhausted, seeking relief, those who are facing obstacles, who face mountains of debt maybe, or worry. We ask that you set our feet on the path of righteousness and peace. And we also pray for those who are struggling with new challenges, going through major transitions in life or in livelihood those who are struggling with their faith and understanding, those who are grieving, whether it is new grief or whether it is a grief that has been lingering on for months, even years. We believe you to be the God of signs and wonders. So we come to your word again, seeking understanding and a new life that it offers. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you illumine our hearts and minds that we may believe the testimony of these writers so that we can imitate the heart of Jesus, and be honest with our words, and be honest with our life, and be honest with each other. Father, we commit the time to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We are actually going to be looking at Psalm 126, and I'll try to understand, try to help us understand why I wanted Zephaniah read at the same time. Zephaniah just kind of expands on Psalm 126. Gives us a lot more details, but it's a lot more broader. Uh, most of us know the uh, preamble to the, to the Declaration of Independence, or at least it sounds familiar. You may not know it by heart, but you, you can recognize it. It starts off, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, our founding fathers were right. Uh, we do long for and want and desire life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is kind of just part of our instinct. We instinctively long for those things. And Jesus pretty much said, said the same thing. In, in John's chapter 14 through 17, he's basically saying that people should and, and rightly desire happiness and joy. Uh, that's just part of being human. And he says you're right to do that. There's a little bit of difference between as right as our founding fathers were, but there's a little bit of difference in what Jesus is talking about and what the Declaration of Independence is talking about. 
Uh, it's, the joy is something we need in our lives and we want in our lives, but one sort of demands joy, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. One sort of demands joy, and the other sort of is more talking about receiving joy. And in John chapter 14, uh, verse 7, he says, The peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And I think what he says about peace can also be applied to the other fruits of the Spirit, like love and joy. That this is not the kind of joy that the world gives, this is a different kind of joy. Uh, the joy that most people want, and most people in our, in our Western world, really across the world want, it's, 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 um, it's a joy of demanding. It's a joy of um, a self-assertion. But that can never really bring true joy because it's very narcissistic, and it ends up just being a moment, momentary satisfaction. But the joy that Jesus offers is a lot different than that. Uh, he's saying the joy that he offers is something that we wait for, that we expect, and we kind of make room for in our lives to receive. One is demanding, and one is going out and trying to get it, and the other talks about receiving the joy that the world cannot give. And so you've got two different sort of human dynamics going here in these two things. One is taking, and one is receiving, and making a right place in our hearts to receive that joy. Uh, several years ago, when my mother-in-law was just about the, the cancer, it's just about taking over her body. And uh, she was barely, barely getting around. Uh, they came out to visit us in Orange City, Iowa, which is just about 40 minutes, 45 minutes from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And so we took them to go see the aquarium in South Dakota, in Sioux Falls, the aquarium and the um, uh, butterfly house. It was a great day. We had a great time. And we were in the butterfly house, and her mom just needed to sit down and just sit there. And we kind of walked around, we did other things, looked around, you know, and did our, did our kind of things, and we came back. And about that time, we were standing there talking, and a butterfly came and lit on Sue's shirt. And her mom just said, oh, I wish a butterfly would come land on me, you know, and I, that would just make me so happy. And about that time, the attendant came out and said, you know, the butterfly house is closing, and so we need to, to take off. And Sue went and talked to him, explained to him the situation and why she was sitting there, and he said, take all the time you need. And so she sat there, and sure enough, a butterfly came and lit on her. And she said, when that light butterfly lit on, she took it as a touch from God. And she said, it's, it's just that little bit of life on me just made me so happy. And I got to thinking about that. We were talking about this this week when I was looking at this passage, and I kind of thought, okay, that butterfly made her joyful. And I really thought, that's really a great picture of joy itself. That we can go out trying to grasp it and earn it and keep it and get it and do whatever we can to try to get, make us be happy. We want to be happy. But joy is like that butterfly. You, you don't really catch butterflies by chasing them. I, mean, you can, I guess you can, but it's difficult to, to catch a butterfly by chasing it. You, the butterfly chooses you. You basically have to sit in the right place and be still, and the butterfly chooses you. It comes to you. And I really think that's how joy is. When he said, yeah, you, you guys take all the time you want, your mom is sitting in the right place. And I thought that's really what it is about joy, of sitting in the right place 
and letting it come to you. And that's really where we find it. It's not going out and grasping at the perfect job or the perfect house or the two houses or one vacation house. And it's not all that stuff. And it, it's, it brings momentary happiness, no doubt about it. But the joy that the Bible talks about is something that chooses us, that lands on us. And this third Sunday of Advent is the Sunday of joy. That's why we light the, the pink candle. And, and joy can be tricky. And like so many other ideas and truths and doctrines in Christianity, there's always people who come up with these formulas or these uh, theories about it, and they're usually on the extreme. I mean, like you talk, ring about joy, it can be tricky, and I, you have one camp over here that says, okay, joy, you know, you may not feel it. It's not, it doesn't mean that life's not good. You just have to choose to be joy. You will it to be good. You choose joy. And, uh, <clears throat> And so if you're not being joyful, it's because you're not walking with God and you just have to choose it regardless of your circumstances. And that sounds true, but there's also, it also misses the mark a little bit. They'll say, well, if you're just out to satisfy yourself and, and get all this, you know, make, make sure you're feeling good about yourself, that's all just humanistic rubbish, okay? But the thing is, what you end up with then, if you just follow that formula, what you end up with is a congregation who feels like they've always got to put the happy mask on when they come to church on Sunday. And you end up basically with dishonesty, hypocrisy, things like that, because you think, well, if I'm not being willfully joyful, then I'm not a good Christian, or I'm not walking with God, or I'm not experiencing joy like I'm supposed to. And the other side says just the opposite. It says, no, the, the, the central mission of the church is to help people feel good and feel affirmed and, and, and feel developed. And, and it's all about self-love and finding these things and, and that you are worth it. And there's truth in that too. But that's not the central message of the church either. And I think both of these miss the mark. Both of these miss the target. The truth is that joy and sorrow do function together. We looked at it last week with peace and sorrow, peace and suffering. The two just kind of come together, and we have to admit that. And, and we can always preach this, these wonderful attributes, these wonderful fruits of the Spirit during Advent, but until we understand that it also comes with the, with the flip side, the story of Advent means nothing. It's just a bunch of fluff. But when we recognize what's in both of these stories, what both sides of the coin then Advent actually takes on more meaning. That sorrow and joy are both part of life. They are both part of the human condition. And we need to appreciate that. Appreciate that, those two things. There, there are basically two words that the Bible uses in, in, the, in the New Testament especially to describe a follower of Christ. One is disciple, that this person is an apprentice just like we, we become apprentices in a, in a trade. Um, I was an apprentice to a cook at this restaurant. And J.C., I, I followed J.C. Smith around for, you know, a good two months. We, we had this big restaurant. We would do, you know, sometimes on the weekends, we would do a thousand dinners a night. You know, it was a huge place, and it was, a big, it was really active. And J.C. Smith was this black guy about this tall, and he was my mentor, he was, and I was his apprentice on this. I told people I was not a chef, I was a cook. Don't get it wrong. Don't people go, oh, you guys have some great recipes. No, I was a cook, not a chef. 
But he took me under his hand, and I was his apprentice, and I learned from him. And this is, doesn't have anything to do with spiritual stuff, but I still, the, the big advice that I got from him was they had these line of tickets, and he, there was a middle line in the middle, and he says, okay, you don't ever want your tickets to get past that line there. That's the Mason-Dixon line. You don't want to be south of that. <laughs> and then he said, if it gets any further down this end, that's hell, and you ain't never getting out. You know? <laughs> so that's, that's my big advice that I got from my mentor. My point is that Jesus is our mentor, and we are his apprentices. We learn from him. We learn how to do life from him. But it also talks about us being his uh, pilgrims, and we're on this journey. And I know journey is sort of an overused word, but I still think it's a good word because it tells us that we're moving and we're going somewhere and that you're going to find all kinds of things, and the journey is a mixed bag. It is full of sorrow. It is also full of joy. And this is perfectly normal, and we are perfectly normal to long for that joy. Psalm 126 that we're going to be looking at is just really short, six verses in the psalm. And it is a song for pilgrims. It's in the group that's, uh, they call it a psalm, uh, the Psalms of Ascent, chapter, uh, Psalms 120 to 134, because the, the Jews would sing these songs, these songs, they would sing them as they marched up the hill, up the mountain to Zion, up to Jerusalem. And they were usually songs about what God has done. And as they are marching up, it is, it is a, they are actually enacting, acting out the process of moving toward God in this process. And one of those psalms is this great Psalm 126, where they start singing this. And it talks about joy. And it, is, it basically outlines itself. And it tells us what joy is all about. That's the reason I picked this psalm. Even though Zephaniah has a lot more ingredients to it, I picked this psalm because it's so broad and it kind of tells us what it is. And basically what they are singing is that they know stuff. That's why I titled this the sermon, They Know Stuff. We know stuff. They knew things. What did they know? In the first three verses, the first three verses talk about the past. They know stuff. They know joyful memories. They have joyful memories. Uh, it says, The Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the well-being to Zion, we thought we were dreaming. At the time, we laughed loudly and shouted for joy. And at that time, the nation said, The Lord has accomplished, accomplished great things for these people. And the Lord did accomplish great things for us. And we were happy. They knew their memory. And you think about what Israel has gone through. I mean, they've gone through slavery in Egypt. And they've gone through the slaughter of young children. And then the next thing you know, they're being led out by Moses. And the next thing they know, they see the Egyptian army being, being swamped by the Red Sea. They come to the land, and they're, they're in the land, and things are starting to go well. They're, they're building, etc. They, they, they defeat Jericho and Ai, and, and, uh, and then they face extinction from the Philistines. And then they, they're under this crazy rule of this guy named Saul. And then this young warrior steps up and kills the great Goliath, the giant warrior, with a stone, and he becomes king. And then all kinds of, all kinds of family issues with David, uh, with the adultery and the murder, and then his son's trying to kick him out. And then the worst things are worse. They fight these battles, and the worst thing are worse, they divide into two different nations, a north and a south. And then the Assyrians come, and they conquer the northern and just kind of disperse them, kind of obliterate them. 
And then Babylon later comes and takes the Jews out of the south and takes them back as captives. And then finally the, the Persians come and they let them go back to their land and they come back to their land and they remember these things. They remember this history. And they, think, they say it was like we were dreaming. It's too good to be true. I, I can't imagine it. I feel like I'm in a dream. And he says, so much in a dream, we laugh out loud and we shout it for joy. And even the nation said, the Lord has accomplished great things for these people. And that is just amazing that this one religious group is saying this about another religious group. And he even uses the covenant name Yahweh. He didn't say Elohim, this God over there is really doing everything. He said Yahweh, their God, has done great things for them. And they respond, yes, he did. He accomplished great things for us, and we were happy. Just want to give us some observations of what we see about joy just in these verses. One of, first of all, joy is a visceral response. It is a cause and effect. It is a natural consequence of something that God has done for them. It is spontaneous. They remember these things, and they, they naturally respond with, a, with cries of joy. Uh, the word cry, that cries out, it's word used three times in this passage. And it's not even the most common word for joy. It's not even the most common word for cry out. It's a very specific word. They cried out with joy. The idea is that this just kind of just came out. They couldn't help themselves. It is a spontaneous reaction. Joy is something to be shared. Every time they talk about this, it is a third person plural, a first person plural, we, us. We rejoice. We cried out. We, play, we share joy together. It is something that, that we enrich joy itself just by doing it together. I mean, how many of us don't enjoy singing Christmas carols together? I can sing it in the shower, but it's just not the same. I have to listen to myself. <laughs> but we sing it together, and it's this joy. And Paul tells us, he says, you know, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I really think it's harder for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. There's something about the competitive human spirit that keeps us from doing that. But we do know how to do it. When we're together and we're, and we're enjoying family and we're enjoying friends and we're enjoying eating together and singing together, there's something about rejoicing together about that. Last week, we started the, um, the ritual of watching the Hallmark Christmas movies, you know. Uh, I really hate them, but Sue likes them, so I watch them with her. So. But we saw, uh, what was it, The Christmas Train, right? That was last week. If you watch those Hallmark movies, you know, they all kind of have the same formula. You know, a, a daughter who grows up in a small town goes to New York to make a fortune, and then she gets lonely and comes back and really finds herself in the small town with her friends and her family. And, or there's this couple that you know they belong together from the very beginning. These two belong together. And when they come together and they, they do get together, what do we do? We're so happy. We'd be furious if it ended in a sad ending. We watch these things because we want the happy ending. We rejoice with these fictional characters. And I think that's so important that we get grasp this, that this is a communal activity. This is not just, there is a personal joy, no doubt. But I really think true joy that the Bible is talking about is a communal joy. We weep with those who weep, but we also rejoice with those who rejoice. It is communal. 
And joy causes non-believers to notice. They look at the people of God and say, wow, God has done, has really blessed them. And I have to wonder, why don't we hear that today? Why don't we hear people going, wow, God has just really blessed those Christians or something like, what is it about those Christians? They're just really, you know, God has done something or something's good happening to them. Why are they so happy? To be frank, I don't hear that much today from non-Christians, from non-believers. And I have to wonder, why is that? Is it because we have unnecessarily driven wedges between us? Uh, is it because we complain about being the victim all the time? And we're under siege and everybody's so mean to us? Why don't they say that about us? But they said it about these. These people were, were enjoying life. They were full of joy. And they said, God, their God, their Yahweh has done something. And maybe they said it out of jealousy. I would take it if they said it out of jealousy. But maybe they said it out of longing for themselves. I want what they have. I, I really want what they have over there because they sure look happy. They sure look thrilled. And joy flows out of a heritage. It flows out of a heritage. We need to know the past because the past helps us trust in the present. And we need to know our heritage. We need to know where we came from. We need to know our fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers. We need to know our church's history. We need to know church history. They know their heritage. And I, I, I love church history. I love history, period. But I love church history and really get, a, really get a charge out of church history. Because, yeah, there were lots of heretics, and, yeah, there were ups and downs, and, yes, there was abuse and stuff, but there was this thread that ran through every single decade of church history of faithful believers who you look at and you go, wow, God has really done something for them. No matter what period you pick, you can find them. And finally, joy memories must be nurtured. They have to not just recall, not just say, uh, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that. They have to be nurtured. We have to remember them. I'm not talking about living in the past. I'm talking about understanding them and nurturing. We're going to do communion this morning. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But it doesn't mean, oh yeah, I remember when Jesus did that. It's to nurture that. To nurture what he has done for us. To think about those things. And I started thinking, when I'm in this whole process, I started thinking about that heritage of nurturing those memories. And, and I remember when, you know, she said yes. A while back, I was in Ken Afflin's store, and I was talking with, I don't know if I can't remember, I was talking to Ken or Lydia, but, but anyway, I was talking with him, and, and uh, this, this guy walks in, and he comes to the glass, and she goes, she said yes. <laughs> and it's like, and I felt this incredible joy with this guy. Because yeah, I remember when she said yes. I remember when Katie was born. That was a joyful thing, and I need to nurture that. 
Uh, I remember when the test came back negative. I remember when she graduated from, uh, from high school and college. I remember when our church in Puebla had their first service in our own building. I remember that. I remember waiting on the bus, waiting for the bus when Katie was on a swim meet and they were supposed to be back like at 10 o'clock at night and it was like two in the morning and I'm waiting, praying and when that bus drove up, it was just this incredible amount of joy, a spontaneous joy that came out. And I remember, the, I may have told you this story before, forgive me if, you, if I've heard this, if you've heard this before, but one of our churches, our supporting churches split and our support just, tanked it just stopped and we still owed rent and one family back in Irving we get this check of five hundred dollars and I went oh wow God provides and then I thought I better check on this so I called him up and I said we just want to be clear was this a personal gift or did you want us to invest this in the ministry somewhere oh no no it's for you to put in toward the ministry somewhere okay So I took the check and I gave it to a, um, uh, put it in the, in the, in the uh, scholarship fund of one of our students at the Pueblo Seminary for his scholarship for his tuition and said, well, we'll just trust God. It wasn't like, what, next day, two days later, a missionary came knocking at our door with another mission agency, not even our own mission agency, knocked on the door and he goes, I don't know why, but God told me to give this check for $500. I don't know why he did that. But here it is. And it's like, we could pay the rent. Those kind of things I could mail over my mind, and it's just kind of, I have to nurture those things. If not, it's so easy for me to forget and just get back into depression and down in melancholy and all this. But I can remember those moments where God, look how God has blessed them. And they were happy. And I need to nurture those. We need to nurture those, those joyful memories. And so the section ends with the, the, art, the, the, the psalmist, the author, agreeing with it, go, yeah, he did. And we were happy. And we were happy. And I love that because it's almost like he's saying, yeah, we were really happy then. He didn't say, yeah, that proves we were right. He didn't go with that attitude. He just said, yeah, we were, joy we were joyful. That was a good thing. But then the second half is dealing with the future. They know stuff. They live in joy joyful expectation, joyful anticipation. He says, oh, Lord, restore our well-being. Just as the streams in this arid south are replenished, those who shed tears as they plant will shout for joy when they reap the harvest. And those who weep as he walks along carrying his bag of seed will certainly come in with a shout of joy carrying his sheaves of grain. Now the psalmist may be talking literally about a harvest, about farming. Very, very, very possible. But I think it's much broader than that. The Bible loves to use agricultural metaphors. Jesus did. We just saw it in the, in the sower, the parable of the sower and the mustard seed. So I think the psalmist is much broader than this. And what he is saying is that we have a joyful anticipation. That now their joy, their joy is nurtured through anticipation. And this is very important, what I see in the psalm here. He is building on the past, and he is borrowing from the future. 
And I think that's what we do. How do we, how do we receive joy? We build on the past. We nourish those memories. But at the same time, we borrow what we know is going to happen in the future. And we borrow from the future and we build on the past. This is nurturing joy through anticipation. And yet we have two images here, one where God is the subject and one where the people are the subject. And I think this is so appropriate that he asked for God to restore the well-being, to bring streams of water in the south. The south is the Negev, and it's, a, it's basically a desert. And every year it dries. And they have ruts and dishes, and they have riverbeds, but it's all dry. And, and, and they're just waiting to be restored. And they're waiting for God to do something, but it's not passive. They do something also. The farmer still plants the seeds. And maybe in sorrow, but he's planting the seeds because he's expecting the rains. And when the rains come and fill the ditches and fill the beds, then it flows into the river and the desert turns to farmland. The desert turns to pasture land. And I think this is really important here that, that God doesn't promise to eradicate sorrow. He doesn't promise to fix suffering but he does promise to transform it. He does change it into joy, where suffering and grief turn to joy and laughter. And they carry these memories of with them, of, of all the stuff, all the dark stuff, but they, they nurture joy by anticipating with what God's going to do. And so this psalm, we basically have two types of tears in this psalm, tears of joy and tears of sorrow. Build on one, and you borrow from the future. And they know stuff. They know this. They know what God did in the past, and they know they can trust God in the future. And I think that's the whole key of bringing this thing together. How do we bring these two kinds of tears together? The nearness of God. And I believe their trust in the nearness and love of God here. And it was more explicit in the Zephaniah passage. But I think the psalm reflects that, that the more they know the nearness of God, they can build on the past and they can, they can borrow from the future. And I think that's what it's all about, that God is on our side. And one of the things I think we forget about, about God is that God himself is a joyful being. And I don't think we really grasp that. That he really is a very happy, personal being. He is interesting. He lives an interesting life. He leads a joyful life. He, he leads a life that's, that's full to the fullness. And the incarnation proves that to me. The incarnation proves that, hey, you know what? It's good to be human. And it's good to be on this world. And we see Jesus, he was known as a pretty happy guy. In fact, he had a bad reputation about being too happy. But he was. And even at the cross, this is a perfect example of Jesus building on the past, but anticipating the truth and the firmness of the future. He was able to go to the cross and still come out with peace because he knew the Father. He knew that the death would lead to resurrection and he could trust the loving Father. So this is a psalm of a declaration of God's love and people's trust 
in that love. And that's what anchors them. That's what they know. When we do Advent, when we talk about Advent, it's not just remembering the manger and remembering Jesus that came. It's about why he came. He didn't come just to give us civic lessons. He didn't come uh, just so that we could feel good about ourselves. Uh, he came to bring life. And that message is compelling. That message is captivating. And people ought to be looking at us going, wow, something has happened to them. There is this reversal. Their tears became joy, and weeping became song, and, and desert became farmland, and estrangement became restoration, and ruin became blessing. It all just kind of transformed, and darkness became light. And it's certainly normal for all humans to long for that, to long for that comfort, and to long for that life. We just need to know where we find it, that we can't catch it, we can't go chasing after it. It's a matter of sitting in the right place and it finds us. It finds us. It is the temptation um, for us to, to go after it ourselves and to think that we can find it. But <clears throat> Jesus says, you know, don't fear. You can fear everything else, but don't fear. You stand in awe of me. I, I don't know if you've ever heard the term uh, uh, objective constancy uh, that, that's usually applied to children. And the, what the idea is that when children, children grow, as babies grow and infants grow, they develop objective or object constancy. And what that means is that when their parents disappear they realize they'll be back. Because when babies are young and, and the infants are young, you leave them off at the nursery and they start crying because they think, oh, mom's gone. She's disappeared. She's never coming back. Or dad's gone. But object constancy says they finally begin to realize that, yeah, they're not, I can't see them now, but they will be back. And that's true of dogs and, and animals too. And my, my daughter... She, uh, they adopted a, 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 a um, rescue dog that spent two years under a bus in, uh, in Dubai. And she was just, had, did not develop object constancy. You couldn't even walk her without a leash because she couldn't, she would panic if she didn't see you. Well, now she's walking without a leash and, she does, and she's developed object constancy. And I think that's what the psalm is telling me anyway, that we need to grow in object constancy that there will be times where we do not see God but he's there even if we can't see him and that's how we develop joy that we instinctively long for this goodness we instinctively long for this stuff this message that is good and beautiful and true and and he is inviting us to be part of this magnificent story and he's inviting us to let the magnificent story be part of us that he is faithful in the past and he we can be faithful in the future. And that's where joy comes from. That's where the beautiful truth comes from. And this is the magnificent story, I think, of Advent. I think those old shriveled up stories uh, that are based on shame or that are based on fear or that are based on works, they've had their day. They can maybe scare somebody into a decision, but they don't transform the heart much less transform the world.
I am uh, secretly and slowly and, and uh, step-by-step learning object constancy when it comes to God. And we're learning stuff. And I really think, if I, I don't like those signs much at, on churches, you know, where they put these little silly statements out there sometimes and try to be funny. But if we did have one, what I would put on our sign is, we know stuff. <laughs> we know stuff. Now, you're not going to come to Shepherd of the Valley and learn about astrophysics. You're not going to come to Shepherd of the Valley and learn how mitochondria work in a cell or whatever. But we know stuff. We know the Trinity. We know a Trinitarian God who is the creator, who is the redeemer, who is the sustainer. We know that the creation is good and it is beautiful and it reflects the love of God. We know that people are innately good and we know why they are innately good because they bear the image of God. We know that there is a rescue for us when we do blow it, when we have gone off the, off the lane. We know these things. And it is captivating. It is compelling. And I am slowly learning these things. I am slowly learning things. I'm not near as afraid as I used to be because I know the shepherd is with me. And I know that he's there when things are good. And I know that he's there when things are dark. And I can build on that and I can anticipate it. That's joy. Being in the right place and letting it find us and letting it come to us. Chasing after it, it's going to be awful hard to find. But it finds us. We are going to celebrate communion this morning. And we're going to do something um, a little bit different. We relate to God in, in many ways, and this is just one of those ways we relate to him in communion. Um, we can't um, allow our theology to purge the sacraments of the presence of God. I don't know how it works, but I do know that this is one thing that we do that where God is specifically present. Um, if we try to get that out of our way, we don't think God is naturally present in the sacraments, then all we're left with is ideas. But I think God is, is present in this sacrament, and I think he's present in other areas of our life. I think that's part of the incarnation. I think that's part of the Christian life. Through the power of the Spirit, he is present. And we are, with, we are in the presence of God. We are sitting at the center of the universe because we are sitting in the presence of God. So God hears our repentance. He turns our mind to truth. We confess our sins to God. And uh, we're going to do something this morning that I, I don't know if we've done in a long, long time. I'm going to ask that you read with me a prayer of confession. And I thought it would be good as we're talking about sharing these things that we share and we confess together. So I'm going to ask you to um, pray with me uh, this prayer. The Lord is near. In your presence, holy God, we confess that we need repentance. We have broken your commands against idolatry. We do not live in peace with your creation or your people. We have not trusted your word, and we are afraid. Forgive us, restore us, 
and turn our shame into praise for the sake of the one who proclaims the good news and for the sake of all the world. Amen. So in the name of God who lives and moves among us, you are forgiven. The Lord has taken away judgments against us. Do not worry. Live in peace and live in joy.